Welcome to the Experience ANU podcast on iTunes. The ANU campus is always alive with plenty to see, hear and do. This talk comes from Crawford School of Public Policy. If you're interested in finding out more about events at ANU, then visit us at anu.edu.au forward slash events or follow us on Twitter at ANU underscore events. We update the ANU podcast regularly, so make sure you subscribe to never miss a talk. If we've not met, my name is Tom Compass. I'm the director of the Crawford School, and it's my great pleasure to welcome you here uh, to this special event. Before we begin, let me take a moment to acknowledge the traditional owners of the land that we meet on and to pay respects to their elders, past and present. This is Malcolm Fraser night. It's uh, wonderful to have the former prime minister here at the ANU Crawford School of Public Policy. No better place, I think, in my own mind on campus uh, than to be here at the at the ANU's Public Policy School. Uh, the format for this uh, event is pretty straightforward. I'm going to introduce our own vice chancellor in a minute, who will introduce the former prime minister. Um, he's agreed to talk for about 20 or so minutes and also nicely agreed to answer questions for about 30 or so minutes. So it'll give you all an opportunity to, uh, to quiz uh, Malcolm Fraser, Mr. Fraser, on, on what he thinks in terms of this dangerous ally that he's talking about in this forthcoming book, this new book, in fact, just published. And indeed, that does signal me to show you this in particular. This event is in conjunction with the launch of Malcolm Fraser's new book, published by the University of Melbourne Press. Um, already out, I think, for a bit, a couple weeks? About a week. About a week out. Um, and indeed, after um, this event concludes, we'll have some refreshments, and you'll have a chance to purchase the book and get a signing, like I did beforehand. Uh, so take advantage of that as you, if you like. Uh, Mr. Fraser's visit is also sponsored by uh, the Asia and the Pacific Policy Studies Society that publishes in conjunction with Wiley and our good, our good friends, DFAT, uh, the flagship journal of the Public Policy School here in Crawford called Asian the Pacific Policy Studies. This is the first issue, not out long ago. Uh, Malcolm Fraser has a companion piece, a companion article to the book that will appear in the next version of this issue. Um, and we're very excited about that. This is a totally open access, um, no fees either. To, authors or to anyone to download papers. Um, it's our multidisciplinary approach to thinking and talking about public policy issues in Asia and the Pacific region. And of course, having, having Malcolm Fraser's article is a, is a great plus for us. Just to show you the power of open access, this has only been out a short while, and it's already the first 15 papers in this issue have been downloaded 20, we're sung 20,500 times, about 21,000 times already. Uh, and when Malcolm's paper is available, which I think it is online now, it is online now, and when it's bundled into the second issue, we'll get another 20,000 downloads, I'm sure of it, if not more. Um, open access is really, really quite good and uh, good for us too. So hold your questions, form your questions during the speech. You'll have, a, have an opportunity to engage with the former prime minister. Uh, for now, uh, please join me in welcoming our own Vice Chancellor, Professor Ian Young.
Well, thank you, Tom. Uh, members of the Diplomatic Corps, ladies and gentlemen, it's my great pleasure this evening, as Tom indicated, uh, to introduce the Right Honourable Malcolm Fraser to speak tonight on Australia's role in the Pacific. Mr Fraser's biography will be well known to all, I'm sure, in the audience, both in terms of his career in politics, but also his service nationally and internationally since leaving politics. Mr Fraser served as Australia's 22nd Prime Minister from 1975 until he resigned from federal politics in 1983, after 28 years in Parliament. His ministries in Parliament included education and science, as well as Minister for Army and for Defence. Since leaving government, Mr Fraser has played a distinguished role in international relations. His roles include co-chair of the Commonwealth Committee of Eminent Persons in 1986, formed to encourage reform in South Africa, as chair of Care Australia from 1987 until 2001, and president of Care International from 1990 to 1995. He was a foundation board member of the International Crisis Group from 1996 to 2000, and has served as a senior advisor in that same organisation since that time. In 2011, he became a member of the Asia-Pacific Leadership Network for Nuclear Non-Proliferation and Disarmament. As Prime Minister, Mr Fraser had an important influence on the changing relations of countries within the British Commonwealth and on shaping Australia's relations with the countries of East and Southeast Asia. He has received numerous honorary degrees and awards, including the Australian Human Rights Medal from the Human Rights and Equal Opportunity Commission. In his spare time, of which I'm sure there is very little, he has also authored three books, Common Ground, Malcolm Fraser, The Political Memoirs with Margaret Simons, and as Tom just mentioned, just last week, so the launch of his third book, Dangerous Allies, upon which the lecture this evening is based. It's a great honour to have a man of such world experience and eminence and such tremendous credentials to speak to us tonight. So without further ado, ladies and gentlemen, please join me in welcoming the Right Honourable Malcolm Fraser. Director, Vice-Chancellor, thank you very much for that introduction. Members of the Diplomatic Corps, ladies and gentlemen. The book's called Dangerous Allies, but that relates to the context. The first major ally was the United Kingdom. And I'm not really talking about the United Kingdom tonight. Foreign policy needs to be looked at in the context of the times. From the foundation of Australia to Federation, it was natural that we would rely on Britain for defence and foreign policy. There may have been some who believed that at Federation we had become a fully independent country. That was not to be, it was not wanted in those early days. In many ways, Britain still looked upon the new Australia as a larger colony that would still follow Britain and support Britain whenever it was necessary. We still approached the United Kingdom through the colonial office. We were expected to approach third parties also through the colonial office. When Deakin, early in the last century, asked the great white fleet from the United States to visit Australian ports, 
the Americans accepted, and the British were greatly annoyed. The colonial and empire conferences through the early part of last century were all directed towards giving the dominions a greater say in empire policy. It was appearance and not reality. Great powers do what is in their own interest. They may listen to others, but it's the great power's interest that will always and inevitably prevail, and we should not expect otherwise. By 1931, pressures from Canada, South Africa, and the Republic of Ireland in particular, for greater freedom within the empire were great. The Statute of Westminster was passed in 1931. Those three dominions immediately ratified, Australia did not. We maintained the policy of strategic dependence on Britain well past its use-by date. The Statute of Westminster was not ratified in Australia until 1942. There had been a grand bargain with the United Kingdom. We would supply men, money, resources to help Britain fight Britain's wars, and in return, in theory, they guaranteed the defence of Australia. When we needed it, no fault of Britain, but they weren't able to help. Through the first period of Australian history, the idea of strategic dependence on a great power became deeply ingrained in Australia. It was appropriate for the time, a young country, few people and little resources. After the Second World War, the rivalry between the Soviet Union and the United States and the free world soon began. There had been communist insurgencies in our own part of the world. Australia again wanted the protection of a major power. It was Sir Percy Spender who negotiated and ultimately achieved the ANZUS Treaty. It was less than he wanted. It was a commitment to consult and maybe to help defend, but there was a significant maybe on that part of it. It was only achievable because Spender had made it clear to the Americans that we had not signed the peace treaty with Japan if we did not have some form, some formal arrangement with the United States. ANZUS, in the words of the treaty, is limited to the forces or territory of the United States and Australia and originally New Zealand in the Pacific Theatre. None of the wars in which we followed the United States, with all their disastrous consequences, have been covered by ANZUS. Again, in the context of the time, with the Cold War alive and well, ANZUS and dependency on a greater power made sense for Australia. After 1991, matters changed. The strategic context changed. When there were two superpowers, both were, to an extent, restrained by the other. I know there were serious moments, but neither wanted a nuclear war, neither wanted to press the other too hard. Once the United States became supreme, the only superpower, greater military forces and a stronger economy than any other nation, other changes began to unfold. American exceptionalism had always been present in the United States from the very foundation. The idea is even embraced now and supported by President Obama. A nation like no other, better than any other. What America does is right because America does it. 
rules are for other countries. Together with the policies of the neoconservatives, the political face of the United States had changed. Many believed that the United States would only be truly secure if the whole world were a democracy. America's duty was to achieve that, if possible by persuasion, but if necessary by force of arms. This idea, this philosophy, offers the best explanation for the second Iraq war. Against the advice of all President Bush's senior advisers, the first President Bush, obviously, and indeed many others, it was a war based on a lie. It was a war that has unleashed terrible and seemingly irreconcilable forces within Iraq. It has contributed to the loss of America's prestige in the Middle East and unleashed sectarian forces throughout the region. How can people who have probably got double firsts at a university be so naive to believe that a benign democracy would emerge, which, by its very strength and character, would spread through the Middle East. Nobody would have followed America into a war with that objective, and so the idea of weapons of mass destruction was adopted. It was based on what many people at the time knew to be false. Intelligence was cherry-picked on Rumsfeld's direction by faith in the Pentagon to support a policy already determined. Events in the Middle East have not gone well for the United States, or for peace, or for that matter, for any of the inhabitants of the region. Now the United States has turned their attention to the Western Pacific. There are no real signs that her diplomatic skills will be better demonstrated in this region than they have been in the Middle East. There are many who support the military build-up, but I would argue that people such as Go Chok Tong, that it is a dangerous, ill-conceived, and cannot succeed. America already had significant forces throughout the region to which nobody objected. While some countries might welcome an addition to their forces, in the longer term, as they contribute to increased tension between China and the United States, they'll come to realize that the military buildup is not adding to security, but is in fact detracting from it. Others have written that a conflict at some point between China and Japan is possible. Indeed, I think at one point, Hugh White suggested it could have occurred as early as last year. I agree that it is the most likely flashpoint, although an emboldened Philippines, not enormously stable, could also cause difficulties. I'm not concerned about Taiwan, because that issue is well and truly on the way to being resolved by the people concerned. Japan's present government is militarist. Japan already has armed forces more significant than any European country and could develop nuclear weapons virtually in a matter of weeks. President Obama has already made mistakes in his relationship with Japan. Only the other day, he reaffirmed the absolute commitment to defend Japan based in the defense treaty with Japan, quite a different document to ANZUS. But he included those islands in the East China Sea. He should have extracted a commitment from Japan that they would recognize that there is indeed a dispute 
and also gain a commitment that Japan will be prepared to negotiate either directly with China or through agreed international adjudication. That opportunity has passed by. And so the commitment tied America firmly to Japan before the president had claimed to be neutral over the question of ownership of the islands. That can hardly be the case now. One brief comment on that point. The islands had been Chinese. They were seized by Japan in the 1895 war. After the World War, the islands were only returned to Japan around 1971. China, still communist, would not have been in the equation. There are many who believe that the Chinese claim is in fact stronger. The point to recall, however, that the seizure of those islands was one of the indignities inflicted on China during a period of maximum weakness. The unequal treaties imposed by European powers, by Japan and by the United States, before and around the time of the Boxer Rebellion, will, in the Chinese view, all be redressed. Most have been. It is claimed that the military buildup is necessary because of China's growing economy. American spokesmen and women come through Australia and travel around the region, emphasizing American friendship with every country from Japan to Australia to India, but all warning against China. It is not wise diplomacy to imply an enemy in such a fashion, especially when people are blind to any understanding or viewpoint other than their own. China has been through a long period of internal conflict, and then with the communist revolution, they were totally preoccupied with their own internal affairs. And that came, of course, after the war with Japan that had endured much longer than the World War for the West. It is only in the last two or three decades that China, economically much more powerful, has started to awaken and work to resume the position of influence which she would have formerly had in older times. I've been told by Americans that China is a threat to freedom of the seas in the East and South China Sea. It's an absurd claim, it really is. Two-thirds of their own trade go through those seas. It's a two-way business. It's a two-way benefit to China and to America and the countries between. Nobody would want to upset that trade. It's extraordinarily bad judgment to suggest that America needs the military to build up to protect commercial and trade interests. The commercial and trade interests do not need military support to be progressed in today's world because both sides benefit enormously. ASEAN countries have demonstrated that if left to themselves, they can form a useful and effective association. They have overcome past enmities, and no ASEAN contributes greatly to stability in the region. I know there are still some arguments between members of ASEAN, but they tend to keep these arguments low-key and uh, place great importance on the organization itself. ASEAN is also negotiating with China, which may be difficult to achieve for a code of conduct within the South China Sea. America has had no part in this, and American interference now would make agreement even harder to achieve. The United States 
would not regard USS Washington patrolling the East and South China Seas stationed in the Japanese harbor as being provocative, even sailing within sight of the Chinese mainland. Imagine the American reaction if the Chinese had such a carrier and copied that action off the east coast of the United States. It would then be regarded as a major provocation. China has shown a greater capacity to manage her economy well over the last 30 years than either the Europeans or the United States. I know there are those who believe and perhaps hope that the Chinese economy will fall apart, but on the record so far, that's unlikely to happen. Breakdown within China is the only thing that could prevent the continued growth in Chinese economic power, and that is something that America and we are going to have to learn to live with. Hugh White has suggested that America should share power with China over the Pacific, that we in Australia should seek to persuade the United States to do so and to alter our policies. We have no special relationship with America, even though successive governments claim that we do. It's a special relationship shared, if you like, by many other countries. In any case, in the United States system, they make up their own mind what they want to do, and only then. And only then do they discuss matters with other countries. Our capacity to influence policy in that way would be minimal. And I know countries far more powerful than Australia who have sought to change American policy on relatively minor things, and they have failed dismally. The evidence available suggests that America wishes to remain supreme, number one, unchallenged through this century. Sometimes great powers during a period of relative decline can be more dangerous than rising powers. The last part of my book discusses Australia's position. I've made it clear that strategic dependence was appropriate during the Cold War, and indeed in earlier times. I had believed that after the fall of the Soviet Union, that we could become more independent, have our own voice more effectively in international affairs. I've had more than one senior leader throughout Asia say to me, of course we'll continue to talk with Australia, and we like Australians, but we don't need Australians to give us American views. We would like Australians to give us Australian views. It's one of the advantages of age. You can build relationships over time which will never be experienced by governments in office. And also, something which I think Australia doesn't recognize, I think every Asian state in China, and that includes Japan also, they are politer people than Australians, and they're not going to speak rudely to members of a government or to the diplomatic corps. Instead of exercising a greater degree of strategic independence, after 1991, we have over the last 25 years become more closely enmeshed in the American military machine than ever before. I assert that our constitutional independence will not protect us if America goes to war in the Pacific. When we have a powerful three-service task force which can deploy power anywhere throughout the region, 
We are inevitably complicit in whatever it does. We cannot say we are not involved. We cannot say we were not asked. We cannot say we did not approve. We house it. We know it is going to be used at some point or that it could be used and we won't be told beforehand. When President Barmer speaks from the Australian Parliament as though it were a state of the union and not an independent country, it is driving in the same direction. Some Americans believe that Australia is one of those rare allies, one of the best, that will do what they want when and where they want. Well, I don't want to be that sort of ally. More problematic and more difficult is the new and diverse uses to which Pine Gap is now put. It is no longer merely an information gathering agency. Information gleaned from Pine Gap can be used almost in real time, if you like, within an hour to target United States missiles. Australians were probably involved in the drone that killed two Australian citizens in the Yemen. We shrug our shoulders. It doesn't matter too much. Americans seem to care to a much greater extent uh, when President Obama kills Americans abroad by the same means. The federal court, in the, or a federal court in the United States, has ruled that the president must publish the Justice Department's legal advice, which suggested that such killings would indeed be legal. If they are legal in America, it would rest much as anything on the War Powers Resolution passed after 9-11. There is no such legal cover for Australians operating in Pine Gap and participating, perhaps, in the same operations. It is not possible to shrug this off and say, the parliament is supreme, the government can do what it wants. If there is a conflict, perhaps started by China and Japan, or between China and Japan, dragging in America, and it's not possible to say that we can just stand aside, as Canada stood aside over Vietnam and over Iraq. If a Prime Minister in these circumstances said, we're going to pass this one by, as Canada did over Iraq and Vietnam, it would not be believable because of the troops from Darwin and because of the use of Pine Gap. Other things have also been put in place which increase our complicity. The United States Army Secretary uh, announced some time ago the Major General Burr, an acting serving member of the Australian Armed Forces, would be number two in charge of 60,000 American troops in the Western Pacific. An Australian frigate was on station with the USS Washington for a period last year, and I understand will be again this year. Our personnel or forces are embedded in many ways. Darwin and Pine Gap are the greatest difficulty. And as I argue in the book, that association should be ended, but for Pine Gap over time. Nevertheless, Australians working there could be pulled out of the facility in short notice. Now, many people will get frightened. What are the consequences? When New Zealand refused entry to nuclear-powered and armed ships in years past, she continued to share intelligence. We would also have many things in common with the United States. 
but any government that knowingly goes so far as to allow the United States a power effectively to take Australia to war is abdicating Australian sovereignty, and that's a step too far. There would be hard negotiations, but if there's a will, it could be done. An Australia independent would be better respected through East and Southeast Asia. We'd have more influence. If there were difficulties, we'd be better placed in cooperation with others, with ASEAN, for example, to contribute to peace and security. We need to spend much more on defence, probably double that which we now spend. But what price is the integrity of this nation worth? Thank you, ladies and gentlemen. We hope you enjoyed this talk. Did it inspire or even provoke you? Let us know via Twitter at ANU underscore events. If you're interested in learning more about the research and ideas that come out of ANU, then why not consider a free subscription to ANU Reporter magazine? ANU Reporter tells the stories of the greatest minds in Australia, brightest students and finest alumni. Visit news.anu.edu.au forward slash publications and click on the ANU Reporter magazine link to find out more.